So yes, we're changing things up a little bit this morning. Um, So far in this series, we've covered why we believe in God, why we believe in the Bible being His inspired Word, why we believe in Jesus being the Son of God, our Savior, the Messiah, why we believe in His Gospel, His resurrection, and the fact that He's coming back again. Now in our last lesson uh, on Jesus' return, we talked about what we must do until then. What what do we need to do until Jesus returns? What is expected of us? What is desired of us by God? These are all things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks as we wrap up this series. And this week, we're going to focus on why we believe in the Lord's Supper. How is it related to our faith? What does it mean and how should we observe it? These are things that we'll investigate this morning as we turn to the Scripture for our guidance. So if you have your Bibles open, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What does the Lord's Supper mean? We just heard Christ's words as recorded in Matthew's Gospel account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Now Paul recounts this to the church in Corinth. Only Paul wasn't present when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, was he? Paul explains, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul tells us that the Lord's Supper, what it represents, what it means, it was given to him directly from Jesus himself. Jesus delivered this to him. And its intention is that of a memorial. We eat the bread in memory of Christ's body. We drink the cup in memory of His blood. And by doing so, we commemorate, as Jesus said, or remember the death of Jesus on the cross. That death made the new covenant possible. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, He being Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator. And His will and testament, the New Testament, came into effect upon His death. For a will doesn't become a will, it doesn't get enforced until the person dies. The inheritance that comes from that, which we all have access to, was made possible through the shedding of His blood. And that's what we remember in our partaking of the cup. In order to get access to His atoning blood, to get access to the inheritance, we need to unite ourselves with Him in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection, which we do through baptism. And that's what we're going to talk about next week and why we believe in baptism. 
the Lord's Supper was instituted during the Passover. The Passover, if you don't know, is a remembrance of the, Isra- uh, of the Jews of their deliverance from Egypt through the Lamb's blood on the doorpost. Now Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So the Passover was a remembrance, a memorial of God delivering them from Egypt through the Lamb's blood on their doorpost. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of Jesus' death, the shedding of His precious blood, the pure blood of the Lamb, which offers deliverance from the bondage of sin. What wonderful power there is in the blood. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us another meaning of the Lord's Supper. Not only is it a memorial, but it is a proclamation of the power of Jesus' death. That His death was for the forgiveness of our sins. So if one partakes of the Lord's Supper and doesn't believe that Jesus died for our sins, why partake? We also proclaim our faith in the Lord's return, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Because as Paul says in verse 26, we proclaim His death until He comes. So if one partakes of the Lord's Supper and doesn't believe that He's coming again, why partake at all? Turn back one chapter here in 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now the Lord's Supper is both a memorial and a proclamation. But as Paul details here in chapter 10 down in verse 16, partaking of the Lord's Supper together is a communion or participation or sharing or Fellowship, depending on your translation. Verse 16 reads, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? When we partake of the cup, we commune with, or we participate, or we share in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, verse 16 continuing, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's a fellowship or a sharing in the body of Christ. And because we are the body of Christ, and there is only one body, when we partake of the bread together, we represent, which the, the bread represents Jesus' body, we are strengthening our fellowship together. The Bible often uses the term break bread, and it can mean either the Lord's Supper or it can mean a meal, gathering together to have a meal, depending on the context and depending on the words that are used for it. Now, it makes sense, though, that these, this term carries a similar undertone of, of fellowship, like you, when you share a meal together with someone, when you go out to eat with someone or invite somebody over to your house to share a meal When we eat with someone else, we often do it because we enjoy their company. When we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're strengthening our relationship as the body of Christ. At least we should be. We should look at brother and sister here and be filled with joy that we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses who desire to and are willingly 
partaking with us in the memorial of Christ's death and together proclaim the power of that death and rejoice that he will one day return to bring us all home. So you can see the Lord's Supper has great significance and it should only be done within the scope of faith. Now knowing this, we need to consider what Scripture teaches us regarding how we are to observe the Lord's Supper. Now if you flip back over to chapter 11 where we just were, the verses that we just covered uh, were uh, verses 23 through 26. Now I'm going to continue here, and we're going to start back in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the first thing that we need to do when we observe the Lord's Supper is to do so with reverence. Verse 27 and 29 reflect this. Verse 27 says, in an unworthy manner, which is a great translation of, of the Greek here. Um, other translations may not have the word manner in there. Instead, they may just have unworthily. This leads to a common misconception that if we're not worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper, then we shouldn't. I have a newsflash. None of us are worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. None of us are worthy to commune with, to participate in the blood of Christ. Because we're the ones who caused it to be shed. The price that he paid for our sins, the torture, the humiliation, the anguish that attacked him both physically and spiritually because of us, because of our sins. We're not worthy to partake in that. However, Paul's teaching that the way we partake should be worthy of the sacrifice. How we partake of it should be worthy of his sacrifice. And that mindset should be one of reverence. And Paul says failure to do so brings condemnation. It makes one guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. So if we make light of such a memorial, as akin, it, it, it would be akin to mocking Jesus while he was on the cross. I don't think that's a group that any of us want to be a part of, is it? Paul also teaches that we should observe the Lord's Supper, this memorial of Christ's death, with reflection. Verse 28, Paul writes, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We need to reflect on ourselves. We need to reflect on our life, on our spiritual condition. And once we've done that, and we've gotten to a point of reverence and respect of what it is we're partaking, then we partake of the bread and the cup. Are we living in a manner that shows appreciation for Jesus' sacrifice? Are we living for Jesus who died for us, who purchased us with His blood? Or are we willfully sinning, guilty of having trampled underfoot the Son of God, of profaning His blood, the blood of the covenant, or insulting the Spirit of grace? That's all from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26-29, by the way. Do we... By refusing to repent of our sins, partake of the memorial in a manner that is pleasing in God's eyes. One cannot partake of the Lord's Supper, 
commune with his blood and body, fellowship with the one body, if they refuse to reflect on their life, their spiritual condition, and remember the sacrifice that was offered up on their behalf. Now, in this sense, the Lord's Supper is a very private manner between a Christian and God. It is a time to reflect on the past and to resolve for the future in a reverent and respectful manner. There's four R's there, if you're keeping notes. Reflect, resolve, revere, and respect. Now, in another way, a way that we've touched on briefly, there's plenty of evidence to indicate that the Lord's Supper is, uh, is to be not just a communion between man and God. Uh, I'm sorry, communion between man and Christ. Uh, that's where the communion is. But with the body of Christ as well. The body of believers. If you look down real quick at verse 33 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another to partake. It means that they're not to do it alone. They're not to do it off in separate groups, but together as a whole, as one body, one bread. The supper is intended to build fellowship with the believers as well. So in cases where someone is traveling or camping and they bring along communion to partake of the, on the first day while they're out at the campsite, do so in order to commune with others around you. Partaking alone does not build fellowship. I remember Christ's death every day, but I don't partake of the bread and the cup when I do so. Because that's something to be done as a memorial with the body. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. Now, while you're turning there, I want to just bring something up that I've, I've had questions myself and some have asked me as to why we and other congregations partake of communion twice on Sunday, once in the morning, once in the evening. Uh, and the partaking in the evening is, to, is usually just for those who are unable to attend in the morning uh, and, and want to partake in the evening. Now, this is a tradition which started many years ago when there was a need for work and surviving that caused many to be unable to attend. From what I understand, it happened back during the war. When people had to work multiple jobs to be able to make ends meet, they weren't able to attend church in the morning. And so they started having evening services so that they could attend, they could get the lesson, they could fellowship, and they could have communion. But this is not necessarily a practice that Scripture supports or establishes but it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. I'll say that as well. Now, I'm of the belief that when we gather at the first of the week, which we'll talk about in a moment, we partake of the Lord's Supper. If I'm sick or if I'm unable to attend for some reason in the morning and I'm not able to partake of that, that's okay. That's okay. I don't have to make it up. This isn't a test in school that if you don't, if you don't take it, you're going to get an F. You're going to get a failing grade. That's not how this works. Because if we do that, we teeter on the border of it being a checkbox in our weekly routine. Now, as we've seen, when we partake, it should be with reverence and reflection and with fellowship. If we offer the bread and the cup in the evening, which we do, 
then ample time needs to be given to those who are partaking so that they may reflect and pray. And so, so too in the morning. Sometimes if we have a, a, a smaller number in the morning, the, the plate and the cup go by pretty quick. And there's not a lot of time to reflect and pray. But when we give it, there needs to be time given for that. And those who are not necessarily partaking in eating of the bread or drinking of the cup, they need to be partaking with that person in prayer, in reflection, in reverence, so as to build that fellowship with those who are partaking in the front row. When we reflect and when we partake of this in the fellowship sense, are you remembering your brothers and sisters around you who are also partaking of that bread with you? Are you offering up prayer for them? Are you reflecting for them as well? Hoping to support them through prayer. Now Acts chapter 20 verse 7. This is where we get the scriptural evidence of when the Lord's Supper was observed. One of a couple places. But verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. I think I can do that. Uh, you notice there that the, the writer of Acts, Luke, used a personal pronoun. He said, we, when we were gathered together to break bread. It means he was present. But they were gathering together on the first day of the week. And why? What was the purpose of them getting together? Were they getting together to sing? Were they getting together to, to hear a message from Paul? Were they getting together to to uh, have a potluck. They were getting together to break bread or partake of the Lord's Supper. That was their purpose of gathering together. And that is the purpose that we gather together every first day of the week. Sometimes I feel like my sermon gets boosted up over what we're partaking of in the Lord's Supper. And that shouldn't be the case. Our singing, our prayer, the, the sermon, none of that should ever take precedent over the, the memorial of Christ's death. Everything should point to that. Because without that, all of this means nothing. Without Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what we're doing here means nothing. That's why we're here. Now, the premise in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we had been reading, that Paul was... Um, talking to them about, they were coming together on the first day of the week to break bread, but people were abusing it. They weren't doing it in the proper manner. That's why he's talking about it in an unworthy manner. Now, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul gives instructions concerning the collection of money to benefit the spreading of the gospel. Paul instructs them to take up a collection at the first of the week. Why would Paul suggest that the church come together on a different day to give money? He doesn't. Because they're already coming together on the first day of the week to partake of the bread and the cup. So on top of that, Paul suggests that the church come together to also um, give at that time as well. Because they're already coming together. So that's another a piece of evidence uh, in 1 Corinthians that the first century church was gathering together at the first of the week. And of course, with the similar purpose of those in Acts chapter 20. When we look at the evidence that we have in Scripture, we know that God approves of a weekly observance of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. 
Now, several writings from history confirms that Christians assembled on the first day of the week to, more, uh, to memorialize Christ's death. Writings that range from AD 95 to AD 50. And several religious scholars after that, even from denominational leanings, confirm this as well. Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, all of the divisions that have happened since Christ's death, since the establishment of the church, all of these divisions also said... This is, why it, this is how it's always been done. There are some, however, and many of those that I just mentioned, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and others, that suggest that a weekly observance somehow diminishes the importance of the Lord's Supper. They've taken their teachings of this is how it has always been to now saying, well, nah, yeah, but, but it diminishes the importance. And they use that to justify partaking of the Lord's Supper monthly or quarterly or sometimes just once a year at Passover. Now, I would argue this is an act of worship that we gather together to do. Among other things that we do that are acts of worship, does assembling together as a body to fellowship with one another diminish its value or its importance? Or how about singing and praying? We do that every week. Does that diminish its value or its importance in our lives or in our assembly? Does preaching and studying from God's Word decrease its value or significance in our lives? I think the answer to all of those is no, of course not. So why, why, would, the, why would the Lord's Supper be any different? Now in all of those instances, we can become so ingrained in tradition in this checklist mentality that their value, their meaning, and their importance could be gone. Could completely, we could completely lose that. And the Lord's Supper is, is no different. Now I would say in my, in my history of, of serving in the church, that presiding over the Lord's Supper is one of the most stressful positions in worship that I have ever led. Some will say song leading. I don't want to hit that wrong note. Who cares? That's what I learned a long time ago. Who cares? Preaching. That's a stressful thing, right, Clint? (laughs) But leading the Lord's Supper, presiding over the table, is very stressful to me because the reverence and the introspection aspect of the Supper, that falls on all of us individually. But the man that's leading the message and the thoughts from the table helps to set the tone and to aid in getting the, the, the body of believers in the right mindset. The prayers offered at the table should be prayers of thanksgiving, thankful for the sacrifice, thankful for the chance to remember his sacrifice, and thankful for God's grace and mercy on us. And hopefully to encourage further prayer and reflection by everyone individually. I hope that as you're partaking of the bread and the cup each week that you don't just sit there and eat it and wait for the next serving. I hope that there's more to it because that's what is expected. That's what we need to be doing. Our spiritual lives are dependent upon the value and the benefit of Jesus' death on the cross. A weekly observance of that memorial helps us to live appreciative of that sacrifice, reminded of why He had to die because of you, because of me, and to encourage us to live a life more in the light. The Lord's Supper is a very special memorial of His death for our sins. 
Jesus Himself instituted it. And He asked His disciples to do it in His memory. The first Christians, the first established congregations, continued steadfastly in the observance of this memorial, just as they did the doctrine of the apostles, the fellowship, and the prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Today we as Christians should never lose sight of the significance of the Lord's Supper. It is a constant reminder of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus paid for our sins. It is a communion, a sharing, a fellowship of the body and the blood of the Lord. It is a time for us to reflect and focus our thoughts and lives on serving the Lord. It is a means to build fellowship with one another within the body of Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper is something that only those who have been baptized should partake in. Why? On Wednesday night, we discussed this in our class about personal evangelism, questions that we may encounter uh, when we talk about our faith. But why do only the baptized partake? Why would one partake of the Lord's Supper if they don't believe in Christ's sacrifice for their sins? That the atoning blood He poured out to cover over our sins. If you're thinking, I believe that, I'm not baptized, then why haven't you been baptized? Is it only through baptism, or I'm sorry, it is only through baptism that one gains access to the new covenant, to the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. Listen to Paul's words from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. I'm going to stop right there. A lot of people say that baptism is a work that we do. We are the ones that go in the water. We're the ones that are doing the working. False. This verse right here tells us that God is the one that does the work. He's the one through the water, in the water, that we are cut off from the flesh and joined with Christ. A new circumcision joining us to Christ. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Unity together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that He set aside, nailing it to the cross. As a baptized disciple of Christ, I have a better knowledge and understanding of the price that He paid for me because I died to my sins. Sins that He took away. Sins that He nailed to the cross because He gave me free will. He gave me the opportunity and the choice to obey His commands. A choice that only I can make for myself. Somebody else can't make this decision for you. Not your parents. Not a a preacher. Not a teacher. You have to make the choice yourself to become a, uh, a, a Christian. To humble yourself like a child and obey His commands to be baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection, becoming a part, joining to His body. In Acts, it says that some 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. They were added to 
the body because they were added, they were joined with his body in baptism. It all, it all comes together. We are one body that partakes of the one bread. If you're here this morning and you've not been baptized for the remission of your sins, if you've not been joined with Christ in the water, again, something that God performs, not you, Paul said in Colossians 2, you have to make the choice for yourself to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you've not done that, then don't wait. We're going to sing a song right now, and we're going to give you the opportunity to come forward and make that decision today to go down in the water, die to your sins, be raised to a newness of life in Christ. And then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together as one body. But if we can assist you with that or any other need, now is is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.